The following podcast is provided by truthforsaints.com, a resource for cults, religions, and church history. Hello and welcome to the Truth for Saints podcast, where we look to provide a Bible-based perspective regarding world religions, cults, sects, denominations, and philosophical worldviews, all for the purpose of equipping the saints of God for the work of ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ, as the scriptures say in Ephesians 4.12. My name is Andrew Hamilton, and uh, I'm delighted to be here with Dr. Ken Hochstetter, a Bible-believing professor of philosophy, author, speaker, a good friend, and brother in the Lord for 25 years going. Uh, Welcome, Ken. Thank you. Good to be here. Has it really been 25 years already? It's unbelievable. I can't. It's, wow. I was just thinking about 25 years ago. It doesn't it just flies by? It does. Well, a few weeks back, as you recall, we began to to cover an important topic, and we wanted to start with a lot of these topics uh, just just to provide a good foundation. And we started with uh, probably the most important topic, which is who is God? That is, what does He say about Himself? How does he reveal his attributes? Or in other words, we, you know, these, this is known as theology proper, if you were to look at it from a systematic theology uh, point of view. So, Ken, w- w- we've, we've covered a couple attributes of God. We covered the omnipotence of God, and we covered the kindness or the goodness of God, I believe it was, was the goodness of God. Uh, can you give us a quick recap of what the omnipotence is? Of God is what the goodness of God is, and why is it important for us to have a good grasp of those two attributes of the God of the Bible? Okay, so on omnipotence, um, the idea of omnipotence is that uh, anyway is that uh, God can do all things, um, and some who are of course anti-Christian or um, atheists uh, have tended to point out that um, we run into a problem, and even your everyday person on the street run into a problem and that, well, if God can do anything, then he can do things like, you know, the famous one, create a rock too big that he can't lift. Yeah, yeah. And the like. And so it's pointed out that, you know, you, you Christians are believing in uh, absurd attribute. Uh, but I think, as we pointed out, that's a misunderstanding of omnipotence. Um, God can do all things within the realm of what's possible. So a rock too big for God to lift, uh, it's just a contradictory statement and absurdity. It's it's a meaningless statement, uh, we pointed out. And the idea is um, God can do everything within the realm that's logically possible. And so mm-hmm. things like creating the universe, uh, raising the dead, all those things are logically possible, even though they're impossible for us. They're perfectly possible for God. And uh, that's the idea of omnipotence. Okay. This, this is probably half... Uh, of the problem of evil. Now, the problem of evil is used, in, and as we've said before, I believe it's a bit of a smoke and mirrors uh, approach to denying the existence of God, and that uh, people might say to themselves, well, an all-powerful God who is all-loving could not exist in the same universe or the same earth with all the evil. We see the evil that is here, and therefore uh, an all-loving, all-powerful God must therefore not exist, that sort of thing. So it's the problem of evil. People see evil, 
Uh, there have been man-made attempts at trying to get rid of that evil or, or their own system, like the man-made system of Hinduism, which says that if you are reincarnated over and over and over and you work off karma of a past life, that you'll you'll come back in the next life by having it worked out worked off against you. And so evil kind of goes around. What goes around comes around. But the problem is with that is it perpetuates the problem of evil. In this situation, of course, uh, we, we will address the problem of evil probably in future future podcasts, but yeah, definitely. we've covered the omnipotence, an all-powerful God. Now we also covered an all-loving God, so the goodness of God. Now, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, the goodness of God, why it's important, and, why, and w- perhaps remind us a bit why it's important for us as Christians to get a good handle on that attribute of God. Okay, so at least for Christians, uh, just for, first of all, the idea that God is good is, um, I think it includes his lovingness to us, and we saw that exhibited in Jesus. He always does the perfectly right thing, uh, never does what is wrong, and what he allows to exist in the universe. Uh, also fits perfectly within his goodness and his overall plan, even though we don't understand it now. But setting aside the problem of evil for now, which is really a problem had by um, atheists and the like, not by the believer. The believer, I think, faces another problem, which we should address um, in a future uh, podcast, namely divine silence and hiddenness. That yeah. um, we Christians sometimes get frustrated that God appears silent and hidden from us. But if we keep in mind um, his goodness, he, of course, has a very good reason for that. And so I think having a grasp of God's goodness can help us in our day-to-day walk with the Lord when he's silent and hidden, knowing that, well, he is good, he has a reason for this, and I just need to trust him. That's where I think where Christians need to reflect upon the goodness of God is in those situations. Yeah, I know. If I can, if I could add a bit of clarity to the silence of God. When we talk about the silence of God, we're not talking about perhaps um, the sort of skewed charismatic understanding that God just isn't speaking in our minds to us and we're not hearing his voice in our head, that sort of thing. And we're not getting burning burnings in the bosom like we used to and that sort of thing. We're, we're not talking about more of a more of an experiential uh, silence or speaking of God. Well, I, I, now, correct me if I'm wrong, but what we're talking about is as Christians, when we pray for a thing, we ask for a thing, we cry out for a thing, for whatever reason, that which we have asked for, we have not seen come to pass. Is that is that what you'd say probably the silence of God or, or a struggle that we might find ourselves in or a... Uh, well, you know, it, Christians in the in in the Eastern worlds, Eastern Bloc nations, you know that they, they're going through tremendous persecution, crying out to God, and and the persecution hasn't yet been lifted. And so, when you say the silence of God, can you can you clarify it? Are we talking about prayer, or in in, in terms of need, or are you talking about something else? Both, kind of. I I, I think our experiencing a lack of answer to our prayers, at least immediately. Is probably a part of the silence of God, but um, I mean it quite literally. That God quite literally is silent. <laughs> we don't have living prophets speaking on behalf of God for us. The last message we heard, of course, was Jesus and the apostles, and we have not heard from him since. We heard the literal voice of God in Jesus. Thereafter, we don't hear God. Um, we saw God incarnate in Jesus, but 
we don't see him here. Um, and so, quite literally, God has been, since Jesus and the apostles, silent and quite literally hidden. Um, but also, um, I, I think it comes out sometimes when we pray and ask God for things and there appears to be nothing. Our prayers bounce off the ceiling, as it were. Uh, I think that's part of the hiddenness and silence of God, yes. I remember my son asking this when he was only about four or five years old. He was asking, well, I pray, but I don't hear God saying anything. He doesn't say anything. It's a profound question that really, as Christians, if we're honest, we also might say the same thing. But I pray, but I don't necessarily hear anything. Correct. But, of course... As Christians, we believe that the that the Lord speaks to us through Scripture, and He's not silent through Scripture. Uh, he speaks continually and repeatedly through Scripture, and that's one of the reasons why when we read and we're told to read it daily, to to be a, to, to hear the voice of God in Scripture. But even then, it can seem, as some say, the heavens seem as brass. Even though you're reading in Scripture, and I know you have had these times, uh, and I and I can certainly say, speaking for myself, I know I have had these times where we've read through Scripture and nothing seems to, to come alive or grab you, and you're thinking, "Where is God right now?" That kind of thing. And so, yeah, I can you just get this sense of quiet or of silence. And so, yeah. you know, really, because you have unbelievers who claim that God isn't there, obviously, because they can't see, hear, or feel him. And then you have Christians who struggle uh, with hearing from God because they can't see, feel, or hear him, that kind of thing. So correct, correct. It's, it's definitely worth an examination. So, Yeah, but just if, just bringing it back around to the goodness, um, when we're in those moments, and this is just, you know, for those who might be in it, if you remember that God is good, and if you believe in the God of Christianity, you, of course, would have to accept that then you have to uh, accept that he is there in spite of the silence and hiddenness. Yes, and and so as the scriptures say repeatedly, it, it is impossible to please God without faith. It's impossible to please God without faith. So we come to salvation. We are converted. We are um, forgiven and washed uh, by the blood of Jesus, washed of our sins, born brand new, born again, new creatures, new creation, However, it doesn't mean that our life of faith is now over. Our faith now is we've we've put our faith in Jesus and then now we we live in this utopian sort of thing where, where we we're no longer required to have faith. It, it's quite the opposite. Oftentimes I find that the times where the most faith has been required of me have been the times where I've grown the most. Those have been the times where I've really, really had to trust in the Lord. And then it, it, the, the faith that I profess is, is put into practice. And one of those ways that I put that faith into practice is trusting that God is good in the midst of difficulty and, and, and hard times, like you say, Ken. Right, right. Right. So uh, that is the goodness of God, the omnipotence of God, critical issues. But we have one this week that is uh, probably one of the primary uh, one of the primary attributes that really separates the God of the Bible, the God of Christianity, from the God of the cults, the God of the world religions around us, the false gods, and that is the topic of the Trinity. The God of the Bible is a triune God. 
Uh, that is, uh, and believe me, that there have been theologians for 2,000 years who have tried and tried and tried to expound on the idea of the Trinity, even to give sort of examples um, where you talk about water being in a frozen state and being in a state of steam and being in a, uh, a liquid state and that being a picture. But even that falls into one of the old heresies. It breaks down. It falls apart because that's really not what the Trinity is. So uh, Ken will go into a lot of the technical aspects, the deeper aspects of that. But what I'd like to do is perhaps go over a few scriptures which talk about the uh, about who God is. So the Muslims say it's blasphemous to have a trinity. And in fact, I think, correct me on this if I'm, if I'm wrong, I, I think Norman Geisler in his book, Answering Islam, talks about how there are writings among Muslim clerics who claim that the trinity, the ancient, the ancient uh, clerics, of Islam claim that the Christians believe in a trinity that includes Mary. Have you now? Do you recall mm. that from his book when we when we when we went through his book years years ago? That was yeah. I find that interesting because really for the Catholics that pro, the Roman Catholics that's probably somewhat true um, because Mary for them is elevated to a level of deity status. Yeah, I wonder if that's where they got it. I, I would say probably yeah because yeah. Uh, the understanding there is that um, Muhammad in his in his town or his area, his tribal region, there were a lot of caravans that came through his region and they, they were Jewish caravans and there were Christian caravans and they would talk about their stories. They would talk about their, uh, they, they would talk a bit about their faith. And so he picked up bits and pieces. And so if you look carefully, it's, it's a bit of a combination of uh, Judaism, Christianity, and then the pagan idolatry of Mecca at the time. Mecca, of course, being the site for 360 gods, uh, one of which was uh, El Elah, or which would, would, would be shortened to the term Allah. Uh, right, and so more than likely, one of those caravans, he picked up the idea of the exalted Mary sort of uh, Thing that had happened probably in the seventh century by that time. Right. Any anyhow, yeah. So, well, we have world religions that uh, believe that all things go into God and become God. Pantheism, uh, all things be, make up the being of God. That is Brahman, and that's uh, of Hinduism. And you, then you have uh, Mormon, the Mormon God, which is a uh, God who started out as a baby on a planet near a star named Kolob, then grew into man, then grew into God and joined the other millions and millions and millions of uncounted God and then did not create the earth, but just reorganized the earth. Uh, Jesus is one of his sons who is a God himself alongside him. The Holy Spirit is a God alongside him. So three gods, not one, three gods. And then you have Lucifer, who is also Jesus's brother. Uh, which is contrary to Scripture, where Scripture says that Jesus created Lucifer. But Lucifer, who would become the devil by name, he also was one of those gods, one of the millions and millions of gods that are out there. So you, you have all of these ideas about who God is, and all of them are contrary to the God of Scripture. So the God of Scripture said, uh, basically begins, we, we know that this begins with what the Jewish people refer to as the Shema. So the Shema would state that uh, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And that, to this day, is the Shema that Jewish people, active Jewish people, uh, would, who are active in their faith, I should say, would repeat. They'll tell you that Shema. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And it's for them they say, well, we cannot believe the Trinity because you're saying that there are three gods, and yet there is one God. But here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, it says, Yet for us there is but one God, same as the Jewish people, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. So identical, one God the Father, one God Jesus Christ, through whom we live. Now look in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then you you have uh, certain manners in which the Apostle Paul would address people in 2 Corinthians 13. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And then we, we, we will talk about Christology, that is, who is Jesus, the, the deity of Jesus. Uh, in second in Colossians 2 9 it says for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form there's just a number of scriptures Matthew 28:19 I think is a very good one and here the Lord says therefore go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and why on earth would you baptize? in anyone else's name except God himself. Well, this is God himself speaking, saying, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, but three persons. Now, how this works, how this operates, is such a, they've they've wrestled with this, especially in the first few hundred years of the church, that many men were deemed heretics just for trying to suggest or figure out how this worked and how the interactivity of the of the, the Trinity worked. What we're going to try to do today is just talk about uh, the importance of the concept, it, what it is a little bit more, go into it a little bit deeper, maybe look at more of the technical aspects of it. But I think, Ken, you, you would quickly admit yourself that we have yet to figure out exactly how there can be one God, but in three persons. It seems to violate every principle of math, doesn't it? Well, yeah, in improper understanding, yes. Um, I, I wouldn't say that anybody has a the correct understanding of it, uh, but you are right. Over the centuries, there have been many attempts to um, explain how that can be. And today, I'll just present one of those um, for, for the sake of time rather than going in, in a survey over all of them. Good, okay. Now, there is a scripture, it's 1 John 5, and I think it's uh, 1 John 5, 7. Now, in the King James, it says, there are three that testify, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And I think that's 1 John 5, 7. So, I am a Byzantine text person. I, I believe strongly in it. However, that particular passage for me, uh, I have a little bit of difficulty with that passage, and here's why. Athanasius had to argue for the Trinity had to argue for the deity of Jesus in his time. And no one really quotes from that. And Athanasius, of all people, would have quoted from that passage were it there in his time. And now, I will say this. Now, Athanasius was Alexandrian. He was from Alexandria. And in the Alexandrian text that we have, all three of them, two and a half of them, whatever it is, uh, the ma- major text that we have, that passage does not exist. In fact, it exists in the way that I just read it to you. For there are three that testify the spirit, the water, and the blood, and the, three, and, the, and the three are in agreement. Now, you would allegorize that. You'd have to allegorize that. You'd have to look into that to, to read the Trinity into that. 
um, but it, it's quite plain in the Byzantine text that, um, uh, but anyhow, with, without further ado, why don't we just go ahead and launch into it? Uh, Ken, why don't you take us through, uh, why don't you take us through now that we've looked at a, a few passages that talk about the Trinity in scripture, there are plenty more that I haven't touched on. Now that we've looked at it from uh, a few of the scriptures that we've touched on, why, why don't you just uh, take us through your understanding of the Trinity and your your kind of overview of how, as listeners, we can perhaps understand it a little better. Okay, sure. So I'm going to assume here on that it's accepted as a biblical doctrine. I think it's pretty clearly, uh, can be pretty clearly shown to be a biblical doctrine. So I'm going to assume that. And certainly the uh, Christian church accepts it. So the idea is this, the doctrine of the Trinity is the doctrine that there's exactly one God existing as three distinct people. And I think most believers accept that, understand that. But going a little deeper, we run into some problems. And of course, unbelievers will point this out as another contradictory thing Christians accept. That if you look more carefully, you seem to have three claims here that are contradictory. and They can't all three be true. So the first is that there's exactly one God. Uh, which you mentioned. The second is that there are three distinct people. That is, these people really are three. You don't have one person, but really three. Uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then the third claim of the Trinity is that each of these three persons is God. But now, it pretty clearly you can pretty clearly see the problem. If there's only one God, and there are three distinct people, each of which is God, then it would appear that we have three gods and also one contradiction. Um, yep. So this is the problem of the Trinity. And um, as you mentioned, throughout the centuries, Christian scholars, thinkers have, had, have tried to uh, come up with various ways of showing that in spite of appearances, it's not a contradiction. And that's what I would like to do today as well. Good. To begin with, it should be pointed out that if you are attempting to solve this problem, we need to be careful not to deny any of the three claims. So the first claim is that there's exactly one God. So if you attempt to solve the Trinity by adopting some understanding of it according to which there's more than one God, say three of them, uh, then you're, of course, contradicting the first claim of Christian doctrine that there's just one God. So uh, you don't want to adopt any sort of polytheism um, in trying to solve it. Secondly, you want to avoid certain analogies like the water analogy you brought up or adopt some idea that what we really have going on in the Trinity is the one God appearing at different times in different modes, sometimes in the mode of the Father, sometimes in the mode of the Son, sometimes in the mode of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this heresy is called modalism. And we, of course, want to avoid that because that contradicts the idea that there are three distinct people. And the third one is a sort of uh, idea that there's just one God, the Father, and either the Holy Spirit is not a person at all, or if he is, he's some lesser God and Jesus is some lesser God. And this is the idea embraced by Jehovah's Witnesses, among others. The idea that Jesus was some lesser God and the Holy Spirit is either no person at all or if he is a lesser God. Uh, this idea is called subordinationism, and of course, that's what we want to avoid too. So, in solving the problem, we want to avoid polytheism, modalism, subordinationism. We want to make sure that we accept all three claims of the Trinity. There's one God, three distinct people, each of which is God. 
So as I said, rather than presenting a survey of various attempts to solve this problem, I'm just going to launch into um, one way of solving it. Uh, before I do, let me comment on what, it, what this solution is. So when I say this is a solution to the problem of the Trinity, I don't mean I have figured out the Trinity. <laughs> and this really is how God is a triune being. What I mean is this. Christians have been accused of adopting a contradictory doctrine in the Trinity. Right. But if we can show that there's a way of understanding it according to which it's not contradictory and you still have all three claims true that I mentioned, there's one God, three persons, each of which is God, then we will have at least succeeded in showing that the doctrine is coherent, even if that model that is proposed is not, in fact, how God is three in one. So... That's what I intend to do. I intend to just present a model, a way of understanding it, which is coherent, removes contradiction, but I'm, I'm not going to be so bold as to pretend, yeah, this really is how God is three in one. Good. Uh, I, don't, I don't think so. Yeah, I, I would hate to have to report you to uh, Heretics Anonymous. Yeah. <laughs> right. So this idea that, uh, that I adopt is not mine alone. Others hold to it. And you could read about it in depth in various places. So... What I'll do here is just kind of give a sketch of it, kind of an outline. The model I'm proposing is based on the idea of parts and holes. So you have various objects which have whole, which are holes, which have uh, parts of them. And there are, of course, philosophically different ways of understanding parts and holes. But the way I want to look at it is this way. A hole is the structure which defines the parts. And the parts become what they are because they're part of the structure. So if you take a piece of wood laying on the ground, it's not a table leg. But if you were to say, construct a table and you use it as a leg of the table, it becomes a table, table leg because it's part of that hole. Uh, but if you remove it again and just toss it off, it's no longer a table leg, but now again a piece of wood. And so parts are what they are when they're wrapped up in a hole, defined by that hole. So in the model I adopt, God is a whole being with parts. A lot of people are not going to like this, but I'm going to continue. <laughs> Where each of the persons is a part of God. Now, when I say this, I don't mean Jesus, for example, is partly God. No, Jesus is wholly God, part of this whole, which is the Godhead. So, I'm not saying here that the Godhead is a person, and then you have three further persons. What I mean is, there's one structure, which is God, which is tripersonal, where the three persons are each part of this structure, which is God, each of which has all the attributes of being divine. So each of which is fully omnipotent, omniscient, perfectly good, holy, and so on. Each part of God. Now, so how does this solve the problem? Well, you have one God, which is the entire structure. You have three distinct persons, which are the three parts making up the one structure. You don't have three gods because it's not as if each of these people are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, distinct from the other in the sense that uh, they're separable. Uh, rather, they're all going together to making up this whole, which is God. You're speaking in definitional terms, right? So, I mean, really, we're not talking about, uh, we're not talking about, you know, three pieces of a puzzle that all come together to form the puzzle. 
I mean, like Voltron or something, you know, you're not talking about them in terms of uh, one interconnecting with the other in order to form the whole puzzle. They are definitionally who they are in their relation to the whole. Yes, I think so. So um, there are different different ways of looking at this. So um, many of us are familiar with Venn diagrams mm -hmm. from math and logic yep. um, where you have three overlapping circles. You do have three circles there. So think of it like this. Here's a rough analogy. I'm thinking of the one God as the entire Venn diagram. And each person is one of the circles. That's the idea. Where each is part of the Venn diagram, where the whole Venn diagram is God. But each of the, each of the circles, now here's, uh, of course, this breaks down. Going back to the Trinity, you've got the one entire being, which is God. This one entire being isn't a person. This one entire being is tri-personal. Where each of the persons is a fully divine being because it's part of uh, the structure which is God. Does it, this make this make sense? It, it does. And and the thing the reason why this is so uh, it's a difficult thing for 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 all of us to really get our head around is because there is no other being like this. No. There is nothing else that's like this, but there's, again, that's another attribute of our God. This is who he is. There's none like him. And so for, for us as finite mortal beings to try to understand an infinite God that is beyond the universe, that he sustains the universe in his right hand. It's, it's, he's far beyond our comprehension, far beyond what we can understand. This is what makes it such a difficult topic uh, to try to address or to try to, to understand. But the main thing that we're trying to get to here is to understand that this is who he said he is in Scripture. It's not that we make this up about him or that we're following the tales of, of very clever men who have made these things up about him. But more, more importantly, it's He's revealed himself as a triune, tripersonal being, as, as you said. Mm -hmm. He's revealed that in Scripture. But now how do we, as Christians, understand it for ourselves to a place, come to a place where we're at peace with it in ourselves and we're not embracing three gods, like the Mormons would say. Uh, we're not embracing one major god and two minor gods, like the Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, or we're not embracing just the the latest uh, iteration of that God, uh, which you have in oneness Pentecostalism, you know, um, the modalism. Right. He, he, he didn't start off as a father, then revealed himself as the son, and now it's just the son and we have nothing to do with the father. And then he revealed himself as the Holy Spirit, and now it's just the Holy Spirit and we don't have anything to do with the son. That's modalism. And but for us, it's one God, only one God in three persons, but all three persons are active and present in your life and in my life and in the, uh, the life of a believer. And I would say even in the life of an unbeliever in calling them to repentance. But uh, anyhow, I just want to throw that in as clar for clarity. It, it, it sounds like a very complicated topic, and, it, and it's with good reason that it sounds that way. It is, yeah. I mean, here's, here's another way to approach it, which is compatible with the part-whole idea I presented. So consider these statements. Um, there is one being which is God. 
the Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Jesus is God. So now, notice I used the word is there. In the first sentence I said, there is one being which is God. And then I said, the Father is God. How is the word is there being understood in each? Is it the same in each? And um, I think a proper understanding of the Trinity must say no. And we do use the word is in different ways. So for example, if I say, Ken Hochstetter is the person speaking. The is there is what's called an is of numerical identity. Ken Hochstetter is one and the same thing as the person speaking. But if I say Ken is human, I'm not saying Ken is identical to humanity. I'm saying Ken has an attribute, the attribute of being human. And so now take the sentence, there is one being which is God. And then the sentence, the Father is God. In the first sentence, there is one being which is God. The is there is an is of numerical identity. There is one being numerically identical to God. Uh, but when you say the Father is God, or you could do the same with Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God, you wouldn't want to say the Father is numerically identical, numerically identical to God, because then you're going to get the contradiction. Instead, what you want to understand is there is the Father is a divine being part of this whole, which is God. Hmm. All right. Just one, one more way of looking at it. Right. And so I guess one of the questions I, I have for that. Now, I remember when we went through this years ago at a, a home group study, we talk about a Venn diagram. For those people who perhaps aren't familiar with a Venn diagram, it's basically where you draw a circle representing one entity, and then you draw another circle representing another entity, and to the extent that the two overlap, you will draw the the one circle intersecting the other circle, right? And so what you were saying in the Venn diagram is it's drawing the intersection for God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but the whole of the diagram itself is God Almighty, and then I, one of the things that I thought, why couldn't you draw the diagram this way? And you, I don't know if you recall me doing this, but drew a circle and then around that circle, another circle, and then around that circle, another circle, where the Venn diagram, all of one circle intersects the other circle. The third circle fully intersects the other two circles. It, it became, it, and, and I think what the discussion was then at that point is, well, there's no discernible difference between the three persons. Yeah. I think that was what we talked about. So if you want to talk a little bit about that, about even Jesus said in scripture, he said, no man knows the day or the hour except the father, which is remarkable. So, but in many, many, I've heard a number of, of lectures and, and sermons that have included that, that's that, that quote from Jesus to explain that within the Trinity, there, there is a hierarchy. You, you probably have to report me to the Heretics Anonymous, but uh, because it's very difficult when you start talking about this, you have to be very, very careful. But it's as though there are different offices carried out by each member of the Trinity. I, I almost want to say responsibilities, but that's the wrong word. Do you, do you follow what I'm saying so far? It's, it's... Yeah, and I'm wondering if that's merely relative to how God interacts with humans. I don't know if, if such a uh, uh, different roles or hierarchy would exist within the Trinity as such, independent of his creation. But okay. I wanted to go back to your circle idea. I think there are a few problems with it. One problem with that illustration you mentioned 
is um, it doesn't leave a room for a distinction between the persons, but there clearly yeah. is. At the yeah. at, even, setting aside the knowledge issue, at the very basic level, uh, Jesus refers to himself as I, but to the Father as you, um, mm-hmm. and he has his own personal experiences not had by the Father, and likewise the Father and likewise the Holy Spirit. So, for example, the Holy Jesus experienced himself. As self, but he experienced the father as the father. Yes, and so there's a distinction among the persons. Each is a divine self, um, and so that's why I think the typical Venn is a better way of, even though imperfect, way of illustrating it rather than this overlapping circle idea that you had, which doesn't, I think, leave room for the distinction of the persons as well. Right. And so we, we want we want to make sure that we keep the persons distinct, but yet also account for how they're each God. They're each God because they each have all the divine attributes. Mm -hmm. There are three persons because you have three selves. And there's one God in that there's one triune being made up of the three persons. That's the idea. Right. So one of the things that I used to get when I would speak to Mormons is this. Again, the smoke and mirrors oftentimes for just avoiding the idea of the deity of Jesus. Uh, They would say, Okay, if Jesus is God, then who is he praying to if he was God? But of course, that's not a problem for the Bible-believing Christian, the person that embraces the Trinity, because we would simply say that was the second person of the Trinity praying to the first person of the Trinity. Correct. And we know that they that there is communication within the Trinity because we see that in Genesis, don't we? When it says, let us make man in our own image, right? Correct. Right. And he's not, it's not all three of us, all three gods, but let us make God in our own image. It's as if there's communication already within the persons of the Trinity. And then you also see there in that same, uh, around that same passage in the creation, the passages about creation, you see that the spirit of God hovered above the waters. Yes. So it says that it, the, the earth was void and without form and the spirit of God hovered over the waters. But what I like that because it, it immediately it tells you who was there in the presence of creation. It was God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, and then we would also say, uh, you know, another thing is that it could be Jesus the man praying to God the Father. Mm-hmm. So that's another, because that's a whole other concept which we'll have to cover in in our section on Christology to, to study who Jesus is. Um, we, he's both fully man and fully God. And if you think the Trinity is a baffling topic to try to tackle, the, uh, the Anthropos, the concept of the God-man is, is, I would say, equally difficult. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. It, 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 because there's so much to it. And, you know, and you have, you know, yeah. Nestorius and so many other people who tried to get an idea of that, tried to put forward ideas on how that worked, and they were banished by the status quo of the time and were, were deemed heretics by the Roman Catholics. And, are, and, and that was continued on through the reformers, also still considered Nestorius a, a heretic, but he was basically trying to get at what the uh, God man is. But so, so that's the other thing we would say is Jesus, the man praying to God, the father, that becomes a very difficult concept to get your head around, but to know that they have distinct personages and they speak to each other. They have communication from one to the next uh, is, is clearly evidenced in scripture. Yeah. In fact, I'm just looking at Psalm 45 where God, the father is talking to God, the son and calls him God. He says, therefore God, your God has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. I love that. I love that. Yeah. And so, yeah, God, why, why wouldn't the father call the son God? He is God. 
And so what you have is one divine being within the whole, which is the Godhead, speaking to another divine being. Not three gods, because it's not as if these are three, three separate beings, substances, if you will, called God. There's just one substance, which is God, one entity, which is God, made up of three persons, which are distinct from each other. Now, I, I had a lot of trouble with this when I was... Uh, a new believer, as I, I think most new new believers probably would, wouldn't they? Yeah. But I, when I was a new believer, I had a lot of trouble because I felt like I was, I shouldn't have been praying to Jesus. I should have been praying to the Father. But then when I felt like if I prayed to the Father, I was ignoring Jesus or trying to bypass Jesus. It, and it was really just a very, I don't know, like an infantile understanding of who God is, of, the, of who the Trinity is. Now, if you were to follow the biblical model, we would pray to the Father through the Son by the power and leading of the Holy Spirit. Would you agree with that? Yes. There you see in our prayer, in our communication to Almighty God, that is the proper understanding of the Trinity of God himself at work in our relationship to him. Uh, what are some other examples of where we see the importance of the Trinity in the life of the believer? Obviously, one application is, I think, a better understanding of the Trinity and how to explain it is going to come in handy when it comes to evangelism and apologetics, yeah. clearly. Yeah. As far as a personal, in your personal walk, understanding the Trinity, I think maybe just comfort that the religion you've accepted is perfectly coherent. Yeah, no, I, I would get that. I think when you say for use in evangelism, I think I think that's quite important. I think the main thing is that we understand that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were all active in creation. Mm -hmm. In fact, I believe in the resurrection, you see at one passage where God the Father raised him from the dead, Jesus raised himself from the dead, and the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. Correct. You see the persons of the Trinity active in every aspect of salvation, every aspect of, of creation, every aspect of our sanctification. So when we struggle as Christians, it is the Holy Spirit who prays on our behalf because we do not know how to pray as we ought, right? Mm -hmm. Yet we find that in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, we do not have a high priest who is not familiar with our weakness, but rather one who lives to make intercession on our behalf. Yes? It's uh, Hebrews 4.14 through 16. Yeah, it says, therefore, since we have a great... Oh, this is New International Version. Let me read it in. Yeah. Actually, yeah, find a real Bible. There you yeah. go. Yeah. Okay, here's the NASB. That'll work. Uh, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let me pause right there for a second. I'll continue reading. Some people point out, for example, Mormons, and when you discuss with them, well, it doesn't. the Bible doesn't say Jesus is God. It says he's the Son of God. Um, it actually says both. And saying he's the Son of God, we're referring to the incarnate. Jesus, uh, yes. by the way. But anyway, continuing with the passage, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 7.25. <laughs> yeah, so I was, I was combining 4 and 7. <laughs> And my fallen mind, um, 
Yeah, so this is uh, verse 7, same chapter, verse 7, a few verses down. It says, Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So there you have God the Father who sent his Son, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that, that whoever should believe in him should have eternal life. So you have God sending the Son. We, you have the Holy Spirit uh, praying on our behalf when we do not know how to pray as we ought. And yet we have, we have Jesus who is able to save those who approach God through him since he lives forever to make intercession for them, for those of us who do that. So he makes intercession for us. So he prays for us. So for in the life of a believer, you'll see this on a repeated basis that uh, as you go through scripture, you see that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are active in not just our justification, but in our sanctification, in that process whereby we're made more like Christ and less like the world. Correct. Right. So any, any closing remarks about the Trinity uh, that, um, that perhaps we can take away? Yeah, I would just say once again, this my way of understanding uh, the Trinity, which again is not unique to me. Um, I'm not suggesting just to remind you that this is the way that God is a triune being, but it is a coherent model. And again, I just gave a sketch, and so I apologize if the sketch left something to be desired for understanding. But in the sketch, the idea is there's one being, which is God. This one being, which is God, one substance, which is God, is tripersonal. You and I are one being which are unipersonal. We're single personal. God is a single being which is tripersonal. So it's uh, this one divine being somehow is composed of three persons. And I think a part whole way of understanding it elaborated on is a good way of understanding it. Though again, I don't wouldn't claim it's the way God is three in one. But it's certainly coherent and therefore a way for Christians to defend the faith, and even maybe think about it themselves, that what they're believing in is perfectly coherent. Good. Well, uh, thank you, Ken. It was, it's uh, been a pleasure having you here today as we discussed the Trinity as yet another attribute of who God is. And uh, this, is a, this is an important uh, element for us to go over because, uh, as I've said before, when, when I'm sharing with somebody who has a different idea of who God is, I don't talk about the peripheral things. I don't talk about uh, perhaps the polygamy that might have been practiced by a particular cult. I don't talk about the failed prophecies necessarily of a, of a cult that, uh, that predicted the end of the world in 1914 and then in 1919. And then, in, you know, I, I don't necessarily go into those issues. I first start with proper theology. I talk about who God is first and foremost because everything else is secondary uh, to that, uh, who Jesus is flows from who God is because Jesus himself is God. So thank you all for taking some time. And remember, we'll have uh, a number of, of episodes in the near future pertaining to the attributes of God, who God is. Uh, in fact, I, what I will do for our next episode is I'm going to come back to the Bible. We're going to talk about a, another mnemonic which covers the reliability of Scripture. What you, you've heard here today with uh, Dr. Ken Hochstetter and myself is we talked about the Trinity and 
we began from Scripture. It comes from Scripture. Well, why is it that we we talk about Scripture with, with, as though it has such authority? Well, for us, for a Bible-believing Christian, Scripture is the ultimate authority because that is how God reveals himself to us. That is how God speaks to us. And that is how we know who God is. And that's how we know how he interacts with us and who we are. And so Scripture is of the utmost importance and being both adhering to sola scriptura, we believe it is the ultimate authority for the church and the ultimate authority in the life of the believer. So that being said, next time we come back, I'd like to talk a little bit about the reliability of scripture. And I'll take us through just a quick mnemonic uh, that helps lend support to the fact that the scripture in and of itself stands alone on its own authority from the fact that it flows from the authority of who God is first and foremost. Do click the subscribe button and you'll be updated. You'll get push notifications for each time that a new episode shows up here on the Truth For Saints podcast. We're on iTunes, of course, if you use iTunes for your podcasting. Drop by truthforsaints.com. Drop us a line. You can ask us a question uh, through truthforsaints.com. Just send us a, a note on the contact form. Let us know what your question is, and we'll see if we can maybe address that in a future podcast. So on behalf of Dr. King Hoxtetter, I'm Andrew Hamilton, and we'll see you next time on the Truth For Saints podcast. Thank you for listening to this podcast provided by truthforsaints.com.